And we're in Esther chapter 2. It's a long chapter, and so I'm not going to just try to read the whole thing. We're going to take it in chunks. And not all of the chapter is on that sheet that you have in your bulletin. If you want the whole chapter, obviously you can, uh, you, you can bring a Bible. You can have it on your Bible app, on your phone, whatever you'd like to do like that to follow along. But I want to remind you of a few things last week. And I want to start off by saying one of the things I love about this book is that it, this book is very down to earth. This book is, is just very true. It's very realistic, and we all struggle with situations and circumstances in our lives. And sometimes, very often, uh, we can be in situations where we feel like things are happening with no meaning. We do not understand why things hap- are happening the way they're happening. Why is this, you know, God, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening this way? And Scripture tells us that God is at work in even the worst of circumstances in your life. He can make good come out of evil. And so that kind of brings us um, to the overarching theme of the book. We talked about this before, that God delivers his people through his servant who intercedes for them in order to rescue them, All right? We talked about that last week. We're going to talk about it more this week. Last week, we looked at King Xerxes. Now, different versions, have, there's two different names that are used. Ahasuerus is the name that the Jews gave him. Xerxes is his Persian name. All right, and uh, so we're looking at that king, and, and as I mentioned, Xerxes is easier to pronounce. We're going with Xerxes. That's it. All right. He had incredible. Last week we saw he had incredible riches, an incredible kingdom. He had incredible power. He could stop everything and call a six-month celebration for all the rulers of his empire, hundreds and hundreds of people. Now we know part of it wasn't just to celebrate. He was raising an army to go fight the Greeks. If you've seen the movie 300, that's the precursor to the invasion. That's the very first part of it. What happened in the movie 300 is not real close to what actually happened in real life, but it made it a more exciting movie. So there you go. He incredibly rich, incredibly powerful, and yet, and yet we see in the first chapter and again in this chapter, he is, tends to be weak. He tends to be out of control. He tends to be foolish. He tends to be easily manipulated. All right, so just a quick, we're, we're one in chapters one and two of the book of Esther are basically an introduction to what's going to come. It sets the stage, and what it does is it gives us a certain amount of knowledge so that we understand things that happen later in the book. But just so you're up to date on the historical aspect of it, Cyrus was the first Persian. He overthrew the Babylonian Empire. Uh, that was Nebuchadnezzar and those guys, he overthrew the Babylonian empire. He took over and Cyrus allowed at a certain point Jews to begin to return home. All right. Cyrus's children took over his kingdom and they totally screwed it up and a big civil war broke out. So Darius, Darius the great, he's called, he took the kingship fought the civil war, defeated everyone, got the kingdom under control, then expanded the kingdom. I mean, you think about a kingdom. It was in India, and it was on the edges of Europe, all the way to Egypt in Africa. This is an incredibly large empire, right? He, he was constantly victorious. He only had one loss, and that loss was to the Greeks at the Battle of Marathon. Now, we get to Xerxes. He's Darius's son, And he has one chip on his shoulder, those people that defeated and humiliated his father. And so he's going to pursue that 
in a foolish way and lose tens of thousands of people because of it. His kingdom is handed to him. He's not always up to the task. He's easily swayed into bad decisions by the people around him. Now, before we go, man, what a jerk, that guy, he had it all. We do the same thing. We can be the same way. People in positions of power often misuse their power to further their own interests, and in the process, injustice happens. Often to people who are innocent. This is, and this isn't just like, you know, if you, if you think I'm thinking of something exactly right now, no, it's the way of the world. It's the way of the kingdom of this world. We're talking about God's kingdom coming down, but right now, in this book, the kingdom of the world is what's going on. This is a great kingdom that we're talking about, but it's the way kingdoms run. Anywhere and everywhere, this is the way it is. So in today, in Esther 2, we're going to see what it means to live in the kingdom of this world. And back then, it was the Persian king, but for us, it's any government that happens to be in power at any time. All right? So the first point that I want you to see, oh, well, let me just show you. Here's a picture of that is, as best we know, this is Xerxes. There's a lot of, lot of, uh, of carvings of him, and that pretty much, pretty much is, is what it is. And, and uh, I just realized I'm reading this wrong. There we go. Okay, here's our first point. To live in the kingdom of this world is to live under its exploitive power. All right? See, I want you to understand this. This is very important for us. Kingdoms exploit. That's the nature of it. Kingdoms exploit. There will only be one kingdom that will not, and that will be Jesus' kingdom when it finally is in its fulfillment. All right? So here we go. Let's look at some scripture that talks about this. It says, later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti. Okay, remember Vashti was the queen who wouldn't do this sensuous dance for all the men that wanted to watch. All his drinking buddies, they got mad. He got mad and uh, decided he made a rule. She can never see him again. Right? So he remembered, king, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let there be a search for, a beautiful, for beautiful young virgins for the king. Right? Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Higai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This appealed to the king, and so he followed it. So we know historically this is several years later. What has happened is he's had his campaign into Greece and gotten his butt handed to him by the Athenians, right? And so he's come back, and he is disappointed. He's disillusioned. Maybe he's a little discouraged by this by this campaign that went so poorly, this war that he lost. And his anger is gone. He's struggling because now there's money that's involved with a campaign like that. There's people that are angry at him. He's worried that some of his provinces, this is what usually happens a lot of times, a big kingdom, you lose a war, the provinces start breaking off because they think, well, he's weakened now. He's not going to deal with us. Okay, so he's worried about that. And he, it seems like he, he's regretting his decision because 
in the Hebrew on this, when it says what he had decreed about her, it's in the passive voice. It's in other words, it was like, it just, it just happened. I didn't really do it myself. Somehow this happened. And, and well, we know what happened in chapter one, right? He's drinking with his buddies and he gets all mad and they say, we got a good idea. Let's do this. So he did it. And now he's beginning to regret it a little bit. It's in the passive, like he's not the one who decreed it. And before we get too upset with him again, this happens in other places. Remember Aaron, when Moses comes down from the mountain and they've made the golden calf, remember what Aaron said to Moses? These people, they brought me gold. So I put it in a pot and out jumped a cow. And that's what he tells him. He literally tells him, I threw the gold in a pot and a cow came out. He doesn't mention the whole part where he made the mold and he, he poured the gold and all like that. Why? Because he's trying to def- deflect blame. He's trying to make it seem like maybe this wasn't all my fault. But Xerxes has a problem. Here's the problem. In the Persian Empire, once a decree has been issued by the king, it can never be rescinded. Vashti is never allowed to be in his presence again, even if he wants her to be. It cannot happen. And so they're proposing a beauty pageant. little side note here. There are consequences for decisions that are made in anger and in haste. Right? This is an obvious application of this. He is easily manipulated, for good or for bad, but he's easily manipulated. And we can be the same way. We can make decisions when we're angry. We can make decisions in haste, and we can regret them. And Xerxes is beginning, hopefully, you know, you would say hopefully he's learning it. We're not so sure about that. So now his personal staff is talking to him, and they say, we got this great idea. Let's have a beauty pageant. Now, this is not technically a beauty pageant. This is not Miss Persian Empire contest. First of all, because there's no choice. The people are taken. It's very strong when it says that. So this is against their will. They're taken from their homes all over the empire. They are taken And it's not a beauty competition because ultimately it's a sex competition. And this exploitation of women is common in the kingdoms of this world. And and to be fair, it's not just an exploitation of women. There's an exploitation of men that's going on too. I don't know if you've noticed, if you read chapters 1 and 2, there's a lot of mentions of eunuchs. All right? And not to get too distasteful, but we know from Herodotus, the uh, the Greek historian, every year 500 young boys were taken from various homes in the kingdom, castrated so that they could serve in the citadel for the king. Every year. So this exploitation goes on for men and for women. Everyone's sexuality is at the king's disposal, everyone's. And so these women would be groomed for one night with the king. Uh, We know from some of the details in here, it would last for a year uh, in terms of how they, beauty and all this other stuff that goes on just to get them ready for one night with the king. Once they had that one night with the king, they were moved to what is called the king's concubine. That is women who have said, had sex with the king. No one is allowed to touch them. And anyone who works with them is a eunuch or another woman. No one's allowed to touch them. They're never allowed to get married again. They're never allowed to have sex with anyone else. 
they become a part of the king's concubine, and if he likes them, he may call them up occasionally. And if he doesn't, he just... So this is the exploitation of women. The other option he has is sometimes he would give one of his concubines to important rulers that he wanted to impress, said, here, take her. And so these women would functionally live out the rest of their lives as a widow. And this is the exploitation that happens in this situation. And it continues. We see today human trafficking. We see today people in positions of power exploiting those who are under them with, who have little recourse to be able to do anything about what that per- person in power has done. One of the great benefits of the Me Too movement it is, is it showed us how much this is happening, how far this has gone, and we didn't even realize it at times. It is far worse than we ever thought. Which makes me stop and think. We have over 300 people in this room. There is a chance, a good chance, that there are people here who have been abused and exploited by people in positions of power. And we have to address this. It's hard. But if something like this has happened to you, first of all, we mourn with you that you've been a victim. It is not your fault. And at First Church, we need to address this because you do not have to live in fear. We will listen to you and we will help you. And I will admit, churches have not always been good at this. But we want to change. We want to be what we need to be for the people who attend here as a part of the body of Christ. We want to represent Jesus in your life. We will listen to you. We will help you. If, if this is something that's happened in the past, we'll love you, we'll care for you, we'll help you in any way we can to deal with this issue. If it is happening now, if you are in a situation of exploitation and abuse, we want to help you. We want to help you find safety and security. I realize that it would be very difficult to step forward and share something like this. I want to encourage you to do it if you are in this type of a situation. Maybe not to a trusted friend, maybe, maybe, maybe not to me as a pastor, but to someone, to someone that you, can, that you can tell and they will listen to you. Because we promise you that. We will listen, we will care, we will help. So we have this search that's going on. And this search is predicated totally on outward beauty. Did they care about her character? Not a bit. Did they care about how smart she is? Not a bit. Did they care about her personality? Not a bit. She's got one job. She's got one job. And it's just in bed with him. That's her whole job. So everything is about outward beauty. That's all their interest was. Imagine that. So backwards. Aren't you glad we have moved on from that? that we don't just judge people by outward external things. This is the beauty of the word of God. People are the same throughout the ages. We're just like them. If we were in that position, we would do the same thing unless God intervened in, a, in, a, in, a, in some way in our lives. We can be just like that. The kingdom of the world that we live in, our culture, it's focused on externals. 
It's focused on beauty. It's focused on titles. It's focused on positions. What initials do you have after your name? Where do you live? What do you drive? What is the stuff that you have? Material things. Those are all outward things. And this is what we focus on. This is how we judge people. We have a lot of young people here. And if you walk into a room of 15 to 20 people, for many of you, you will eliminate three-quarters of the room based solely on looks if you're interested. You'll eliminate three-quarters of the room based solely on looks. And then with the few that are left that you think are attractive, you're just hoping they're smart or you're hoping they have a good personality or you're hoping that you're just hoping that. Do you see what you're doing to yourself? And I know you could say, oh, Bob, (laughs) you're married. Right, I'm not in that situation. But I know how that works. I know how that works. So we're obsessed with physical appearance just like they were. We want things that will give us meaning and identity and happiness just like they do. We want things that aren't necessarily wrong, but the problem is when we invest too much of them, when we invest ourselves into them, they become wrong. I've told you guys this before, but it's, it's, to me, it's, it's, it's a good thing to always remember. When you come across the word lust in your Bible, the word lust, we always tend to think of it as sexual or sensuality. It is that, but it is way more than that. The word lust in the Greek is two phrases. It's over-desire. That's what the word lust is. So it is a desire that has gotten huge. It's gotten too big. It's over you. It's overwhelming you. So that it might be something as simple as when I played um, soccer, uh, and then I, I was playing college, and then I was trying out for a team after college, and uh, I had a lot of soccer cleats, right? I just, I had a lot. I had different ones for different situations. I had ones for when it was muddy. I had ones for when it was dry. I had ones for when it was a packed hard surface. I had ones for when it was thick grass, and I love those. <laughs> I love those cleats. You know, they, they just, and, 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 and I had a lot of money invested in those cleats. And then my soccer career kind of ended, but I kept some of the cleats because they were my precious. <laughs> you know, they were special. Something as dumb as shoes can become an over-desire. Clothes weight. Um, I mean, it just, the list just goes on and on. They're not wrong things. It's not wrong to have soccer cleats, especially if you play soccer. It's a good idea, right? It's not wrong, but it can become an, not just a desire, but an over-desire. And that's what happens to us when we get things messed up, when we start to get things a little, a little crazy in our lives, and we start to look at things and say, man, if I just had that, or if this would happen... And if you catch yourself sometimes, you're thinking, and you know you're not supposed to. You know, as Christians, we're so spiritual. We're not supposed to think these things. But you think, man, if I had that, I'd be happy. I'd be happy. And God says, now it's become an over-desire. It's going to rule you. When Samuel was looking for King David, he lined up the sons and he walked up to the biggest one and said, this is the one, this is the king. And God said, no, not that one, not that one, not that one. Until finally he says, do you have another? And, and David's father, and it's interesting when you read it, he's, his father basically says, well, we got the runt, the punk kid. We'll get him. 
when they bring up David. And God says, that's him. And you can imagine Samuel going, uh, that dude can't hold a sword very well. He's kind of small. And God's saying, I don't, I don't care about that. Remember what God tells him? He says, God looks at the heart. That's what's important to God. Not the outward externals. The heart. Remember Braveheart? You know, well, we all think of Mel Gibson. But the actual Braveheart was a huge man. They say that his sword was almost six feet tall. He had a double-edged broadsword that he would wield in battle, and no one could stand before him. He was king because he could beat everybody up. That's it. And so we all judge on externals. That's what Samuel was looking for. But Jesus, our king, he came to earth not looking for people who had it all together. He came looking for people who, bring, who brought all sorts of sin and ugliness to the table so that he could rescue them and change their heart, inner beauty. That's what Jesus was doing. In Ephesians 5, when Jesus weaves together this beautiful teaching on a, on a man and a woman and how this works, one of the things when he talks about, he's, he talks about husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, you know, that idea that Christ, what did he do? Christ died for the church. He died for the church. He gave up his life. He valued the church so highly. And it goes on to describe in that passage that what Jesus did is he looked into the future and saw the day when he would present his bride to the Father and she would be perfect and spotless and without blemish. She would just be this perfect bride. And so Jesus, looking in the future, said, I'll die for her to achieve that goal, which sets the premise of how a marriage works. In my marriage, I want my wife to be the absolute best she can be in Jesus Christ. Now, how can I make that happen? How can I make that happen? How can I serve her to make that happen in her life? That's what Jesus did for his bride because she's beautiful. But it's not that outward beauty. He sees what she can be. I did a wedding last weekend. And the bride was stunning as she walked down and everybody's eyes are on the bride. And it's just this beautiful, incredible moment. And afterwards, you know, people would come up and talk to me and uh, somebody was saying, she looked so beautiful as she walked down to the front. She looked so beautiful. Not so much with the groom. Someone said, at least he showered, you know. He seems to have shaved recently. That's a plus, right? But for the bride, we are, and I don't understand how all this works, but we are the bride of Christ. And he loves us. He loves us. He loves us enough to die for us. That is our identity. He loves us and he paid the ultimate price. That is who you are. That is not who you want to be. That is not who you're working towards being. That is who you are. You are the bride of Christ, and he loves you enough to die for you. All right. So we see here, to live in the kingdom of this world is to live under its exploitive power. Also, to live in the kingdom of the world is to live as exiles. All right? 
So we look at, look at uh, verse 5 here and verse 6. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shema, Shemai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile by Jerus- from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive when Jehoiachin was the king of Judah. And the next part says, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Okay, so now... You remember, I, I, I talked, the, the book starts off very ambiguous about where God is and what he's doing, but now we get the first connection. Mordecai is a Jew, right? There's a connection to God, the covenant people of God, the Jews. He's in the citadel. What that means is that he has a position of authority. He actually is, is someone who works in the kingdom for the king. Mordecai is his Persian name. We don't know, you know what his Jewish name is. At this point, anyways. And it may not have been by choice that he was given this name. This name actually is a name that praises Marduk, a, a Persian god. And so we don't know if it was by choice. We're not told. We know this. A couple centuries before, many Jews were allowed to go back, and Mordecai, or Mordecai's family probably, they didn't. They didn't go back to Jerusalem. They didn't go back to Judah. And the text doesn't give us a clue why. Throughout the Bible, characters make decisions that we want to speculate about. Was this a good decision or a bad decision? Was this a righteous decision or an unrighteous decision? And the text doesn't tell us. It doesn't give us a clue. We see this with many characters. We see this in the book of Ruth when they moved to Egypt because there was a famine in the land. And I've heard, I've heard pastors you know, preach long sermons about how it was wrong for them to go to, to leave the promised land and go to Egypt. But I'll tell you what. If a famine trying to think of how this, if a famine is sweeping across the United States of America and my family's hungry and somebody tells me there's food in Russia, I'll go because it's my family and I'm supposed to take care of my family. So we don't know that Moses, we see this happen with Moses, with Abraham and his wife, we see this happen. With Jacob, we see this happen more than once. Samson, David, the Apostle Paul, sometimes they make decisions and we're kind of conflicted about them. And oftentimes there is no clue as to whether it was a right decision or a wrong decision. The Bible is basically saying to us, that's not what's important here. What's important is God is working anyways. God is working whether the decision is right or it is wrong. God uses lots of different raw materials as he forms his story, as he weaves this tapestry, which is the story of his kingdom, and he uses good stuff and bad stuff. He uses it all. It's not always good to speculate because we can't know everything that's influenced by the decision also. That's why God tells us not to judge other people's motives. That's why God tells us to allow him to get revenge, to avenge rights, to, uh, hurts and wrongs that have been inflicted upon our life. Why? Because I will, never, I will never deliver justice proportionately because I don't know the whole story. Maybe somebody hurts me terribly, right? And I want to, I want to hit back so hard. I want to inflict pain upon their life. But you know what? I don't know how that person was raised. 
I don't know the people that have influenced that person. I don't know maybe like say the bullying that that person took when they were a teenager. I don't know about that. I don't know about the heartache they've been through. I don't know about the family turmoils they've been through. I only know one thing. They hurt me and I want to hurt them back. And so I can't even take into account their, their genetic, their DNA and how that's influenced them. But God can. And God does. And that's why he says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. That's why he says, don't judge their motives. Don't judge their motives. You can't know the whole story. And we have to apply that as we look at this. We don't understand why Mordecai didn't go back. Maybe it was a simple thing. Maybe he just didn't have money. Maybe it's a simple thing like many exiles and aliens today. He's sending money home because he's got a good job. We don't know. And so I said we can't speculate, and I just did. Okay, so that's how that works. God doesn't, God doesn't want us. He doesn't tell us because he's saying, don't worry about that. That's not important. So Mordecai, or probably his family, they stayed. And here's a key from the Bible. Whatever reason, he stayed. He's there, and it's making it very clear he's not home. He's acutely aware that he's in exile all right, verse 6, I want to read it to you from a more literal version because it's a, it, this is from the New American Standard Version on verse 6. It says, who had been taken into exile. That's one time the word exile is used. From Jerusalem with the captives. The word captives is exiles, actually. Literally, it's the word exiles. They just didn't want to say exile too many times in one sentence. Who had been exiled with Je- Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. All right, the writer of this is making something very clear to us. He uses the word exile four times. He's saying Mordecai and Esther, they are in exile. They are strangers in a strange land. They don't quite belong. Why? Because they're Jews. Because they're a part of the people of God. We see this in, in his short genealogy. He tells us something. He tells us he's from the tribe of Benjamin. He tells us that he is related to Kish. Kish, who is the father of Saul. Now, why do we get this little genealogy? And I just want to tell you something. The distance from Kish to Mordecai is many generations. This is typical of Jewish genealogies. You skip because you just want to hit the high points. So he makes sure he, he, we understand he's descended from Kish, who was the father of Saul. And we look at that and go, why is that important? I'll tell you. Spoiler alert, it's very important as it comes up later in the book. That's why it's in there. It's important for us to know this as it sets the scene. I know sometimes this part of, the, of Esther can be a little dry, but it's all because he's laying groundwork for what's to come. All right, so we see, we see Mordecai. He's in exile. He's not home. He's an outsider. He has a vulnerability. He's a Jew, which makes him have a weakness. We see Xerxes, the most powerful man in the world, and Mordecai, who is not powerful. And so the writer is deliberately contrasting these two things, powerful with not powerful. I remember when, one time I, w- I was in another country. I was visiting my brother who lived in Portugal. And at one point I had gone out for part of the day uh, uh, into this little town to just get a bite to eat, right? So I go out and I'm getting a bite to eat. And, and you know, I'm in a country where not a lot of people speak English and I don't speak Portuguese. And so after a minute or two, I'm just walking up to this little cafe and I see this guy tap his friend and point at me. And they start talking and they look at me and they talk and they look at me. And I was just like, what? I mean, do I look so weird? That they instantly, and which I think instantly they said, 
Look at those clothes. That's an American. See how he dresses funny? <laughs> right? And so they start talking. And I had this sense of, I don't belong here. So I walked into this little cafe. And I'm stumbling. And, and the guy was nice. I was trying to order something. And he was trying to figure out what I wanted to order. So it was almost like we were drawing pictures to each other and pointing. And I'm handing him money. And he's laughing and handing most of it back because I have no clue what I'm paying for. And, and I go sit down. And as I'm sitting, I notice everyone in the cafe is just like, watching like this person is so dumb they don't know what a cup of coffee costs he tried to pay eight bucks for a 25 cent cup of you know and and so all of a sudden i'm feeling so weird and then of course you know your paranoia takes over so anytime one of them said something and <laughs> i'm like it's about me they're laughing at me you know, throw my coffee on you and and i i got it just was such it was such a weird feeling to feel like I don't belong here. That is Mordecai's life. That is Esther's life. Not just that they feel weird they don't belong, but being a Jew is a dangerous thing. Dangerous for you. And so we, as we follow this story, we see Esther. We see Mordecai. We see that she's pretty. You know, and this is what the kingdom of this world values. In every other way, she's not anything significant. She's, she's even, because she's Jewish, she, that's a liability for her. And we see that coming up, Mordecai tells her, don't tell anybody you're a Jew. It's helpful if you think about that. Every time you read the word Jew in, this, in the book of Esther, think of this as a member of the people of God. Just like you would think if you read that, a, a book that someone describes someone as a Christian. You would think, ah, he's a Christian. He's a follower of Jesus Christ. Same thing here. Same thing here. It's an identifier that is not always a good identifier. All right. So to live in the kingdom of this world is to live under its exploitive power. To live in the kingdom of this world is to live as exiles. To live in the kingdom of this world is to be very vulnerable. All right? When we look at, when we look at verse 8 here, it says, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought, that is the idea of a forcible taking, to the citadel of Susan and put under the care of Higai. Esther also was taken, all right? And the way this is phrased is she had no choice in this. Taken to the palace and entrusted to him who had charge of the harem. All right, so she's taken. In other words, she's vulnerable. She couldn't have said, no, I don't want to go. That's stupid. He's a jerk. I don't want to have anything to do with it. She had no choice, all right? But we see with the guy that's in charge, she pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments, a special food. He assigned for her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her, her attendants into the best place in the harem. So we have this system that is only assesses women on how sexy they are and it ranks them accordingly. This is how the kingdom of the world works. Weak people exist for what they can do for powerful people. In this specific situation, pretty girls are sex objects for powerful men. We've heard a lot about that lately too, haven't we? We have not made much progress in 2,500 years. Esther is promoted. She's in a difficult situation. I mean, you can imagine this is a, this is a beauty contest unlike any other beauty contest because one person wins and the rest become widows. 
basically, and have to live on their own for the rest of their lives with no man in their life. And so there's this tension. And then in verse 10, Esther has not, had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how, es- how Esther was and what was happening to her. So he's worried about her. There's that tension there. She's not telling who she is. And again, we get no sense of whether this is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. All right? There, the, obviously, if she tell, says she's a Jew, it is saying this will be a negative for her. And we can grapple with this, right? As Christians, what do I say and when do I say it? How much do I say to people? I mean, nobody likes someone where you just, you go, you, get a, you meet somebody new. They say, hey, this is my friend Joe. You know, and Joe goes, hey, I'm a Christian. Are you a Christian? Do you know Jesus? Do you know? And it's just like, whoa, hold on, you know? And so there's a balance, and it's hard to find. So they go through a year of treatments and training, and then it comes down to one night, your night with the king. And this is what happens in verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any other woman, and she won his favor and approved and approval more than of any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So we have this incredibly rigorous process that is, that is designed to determine who's the next queen, and it is all basically, do you please this man? That's the whole thing. It's a strange story. If you know the story, it's a strange story. Because as we go on with this story, the fate of the Jewish nation is going to hang in the balance. Now understand, all those people that went back to Jerusalem, back to Israel, all those Jews, they're still under the Persian Empire. So later as we get to these ideas of killing all the Jews, it's all the Jews. It's all the Jews. The fate of all the Jews in the whole world. The story of God's redemption rests on one night of immoral sex. That's weird. I mean, far be it from me to be critical of God's plan concerning this earth. But really? I feel like there must have been a couple angels that said, God, is this the best you can come up with? My salvation is resting on her ability to please a foolish, immature, pagan king in bed. My salvation is resting on that. Your salvation is resting on that. That's weird. You can't make this stuff up. And he likes her. And he likes her. And our salvation is secured. Man. This is what I love about the Word of God, because the Word of God is constantly pushing me and constantly making me think, and I'm constantly thinking, God can use that? Yes, He can. Think of your worst mistake. Think of the worst thing you've done in your life. God can use that. God can use that to further his kingdom on this earth. That's really good news. That's really good news. The worst thing you've done becomes part of the raw materials that God uses to weave and make his story on this earth, and he can use it for good. He's going to use this night for good 
And it seems so crazy to me. But that's how big God is. Now again, many people talk about the the character of Esther at this point. This book is not holding her up as a virtuous woman necessarily. She is simply a woman, caught up in circumstances she cannot control, caught in a system that is evil and uncaring. She's in an incredibly complex situation with no easy answers. That's what real life is for us. You will find at times you're in an incredibly complex situation with no easy answers and you do not know what to do and what you decide to do may be the absolutely wrong thing. This is what I love about the Bible because it's real. It meets me where I am with the things that I struggle with and it deals with it. Did she make a mistake? Did she do the right thing? It doesn't say. What it does say is that God is working regardless of the motives of her decision. He is working because he's loving and he's faithful to his promises. God has made certain promises to you and he says, I will be faithful to those promises because you are my child. I will remain true to those promises to you. It started all the way back, even further, but go back to Abraham. When God decided to cut a covenant with Abraham, we talked about this not too long ago. I can't go all through it, but it's this incredible thing where God says, Abraham, if you break this covenant, I'm going to die. He reverses it. That's the wrong way of doing a covenant. And he's faithful to it. God is working in your life in the most incredibly complex situations. He is working even now. Last thing, real quick. To live in the kingdom of this world is to live under its exploitive power, to live as exiles, to be very vulnerable, to expect unrighteousness, to go unrewarded. The passage there, and I'll just sum it up real quick. Mordecai, he, he, he works at the gate. That's where, that's where administrative stuff is done in a city. His gates are usually huge. The gate of Susa, we have found it. All right? It's about 200 feet high. And the whole gate complex is about 300 feet across with lots of rooms and then meeting areas. And what happened? People would come in and there would be customs officers and there'd be all kinds of people who, as you bring stuff in, they'd gather taxes, whatever, determine why you're there. Are you a good person? Are you a bad person? And then then administrative stuff would be going on. Do you have a place to stay? Blah, 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 blah. And that's what Mordecai's doing. And he overhears two men, two guards at the gate who are really upset. This happens at different times in kingdoms. They're upset with, with the Xerxes and they're plotting to kill him. They evidently are officers who are pretty high up, and they're plotting to kill him. Teresh and Big Thana. Now, anybody who's named Big Thana, to me, is a person you probably should watch out for, (laughs) right? I mean, I just envision this huge guy with no neck (laughs) going, man, I'm P.O. to Xerxes, man. I'm on me, you know, something like that, right? That's what I'm thinking because his name is Big Thana, right? So Mordecai's like, that guy's trouble. So he goes and tells the king. King does an investigation, finds out it's true, and, and it gets gruesome. It says, well, some versions say they're hung. Let me tell you something. They didn't have hanging back then. Let me tell you how they're hung. They sharpen a huge stick, and they drop them on it. That's called impaling. If you read, and you're going to read it in the rest of this book about setting up a gallows for hanging, that's what they're talking about. They're not talking about a rope and a neck and your neck breaks and you die right away. They're talking about leaving you on a big stick for days. Fun stuff, right? Okay, so Mordecai saves the king's life 
And the king does something kings never do hardly. He forgets to reward him. You always reward people who save your life because that's how you get support in the kingdom. And he doesn't. He's a young king. He's a foolish king. And it just slips. And so Mordecai, I don't know if he's disappointed, if he's discouraged. But we know this is a part of God's plan because this is going to come out later. And so the pieces are all in place. We've done the introduction. Now we're going to start next, starting next week. We're going to get into this story that's just so thrilling and so, so incredible. There's a Jewish orphan named Esther, and now she's the queen. An incredible thing has happened there. There's a Jewish man named Mordecai who now is owed a favor by the king. God is at work. Why? Because God delivers his people through his servant who intercedes for them in order to rescue them. I don't know what you're going through right now. God is at work. I'm telling you, in the middle of your darkest and deepest struggles, God is at work. He's at work now in your life. Things may be going great. Okay, that's great. He's at work now too. But there will be times when it will turn and it will not be great. He will still be at work. He never quits. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. His eyes are to and fro on the righteous his people constantly watching. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, we come upon a book where your name is not mentioned, and yet you are working, and it is obvious as this, as this story unfolds, you will be doing incredible things that will affect history and us. And so we thank you that you're that kind of a God, that even our worst mistakes become ways that you bring your kingdom. Lord, help us to look for you at work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.